the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. John Knox is called the father of the Scottish Reformation. The founder of the Scottish Presbyterian, Protestant Church and even the father of Presbyterianism. But for as much as this guy has an impact on history, we know little to nothing about his childhood. We're not even sure what year he was born. There's debates whether it was 1513 or 1514. We know he's in the town of Haddington, Scotland, about 15 miles from Edinburgh. We know that his parents are not real important people, but they believe in education. So he goes to grammar school. He goes to the University of St. Andrews, very reputable and prestigious school. But we know little else about his unimpressive beginning. It's hard to imagine that such a simple beginning would lead to such an important character that he would risk life and limb for the land that he would always call home. The world in which Knox was born was a turbulent one. It was changing. All kinds of stuff is going on. The Pope and the Catholic Church, Catholic means universal. They're the one game in town. They have considerable power. They influence all kinds of leaders. The Pope approves all kinds of uh, kings and queens and decisions that countries make. Nations are really just actually coming into power. Normally you just had areas ruled by force. Um, it's really not until this time period you get anything like what we think of as nation states today. Poverty and bad living conditions are normal in most places. There are all kinds of wars and feuds going on. As nations are coming together and areas are turning into larger powers rather than these little communities or these little areas, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fighting going on about what's going on, what, what's going to happen there. In Germany in 1517, a, a priest named Martin Luther writes 95 complaints against the church and nails them to the Wittenberg door, the, the, church of the, the door of the church at Wittenberg, inviting debate. So Knox is about three or four years old when this happens. He's about the age of my youngest Eden, when, when this whole thing really sparks. But it's, it's been building. They're called the Protestants because they're protesting what the church is doing in that day. They're called the Reformers because they're trying to reform the church. But in the end, there's no place for them in the church at large. And they've got to really start their own thing. This movement's going on in places like Germany and Switzerland. In other places like France, there's not a lot of Reformation going on in France. France is a Catholic state at this time and it remains really loyal to the Pope. England is another case altogether. If you know English history, 
they have a very interesting relationship with the Pope. Henry VIII has, uh, is unable to have a son as an heir. He blames it on his wife. We know scientifically that it's really the, the guy's part of the process that chooses the gender. So no matter how many wives he gets, he's always going to have daughters. But still, he tries to get an annulment, tries to get a new wife. The Pope won't grant him an annulment. So he rejects the leadership of the Pope and they get their own state of England. Henry and his, his family, they're not really actually Protestants. Okay, That's pretty important to understand. They don't really care about the Protestant movement. But they don't mind getting out of the Pope's influence and being able to rule and not have to owe money to the Pope. And they don't mind being able to get his divorce that he so desperately wants. Scotland is in the middle of all this. Scotland has some independence. You guys may have seen the movie Braveheart. Uh, where the history of Braveheart's a lot in question. But still, Scotland has its own independence, but still not a real strong power in the area. It's pretty influenced by its relationships both with France and England. But it goes back and forth between the two. England's trying to force Scotland to come over and be part of the Church of England. France trying to keep it very much on the Catholic side. And Scotland is caught in the middle. Scotland's poor and less powerful. They, they have a peace treaty with England, this sign just a little bit before Knox is born, but it's not going well. So all these things are flying around Knox. What is the world becoming? What is this new world that's happening? In the, what's going on in the, in the actual new world? I mean, they've just really discovered um, the Americas, and there's all kinds of questions about that. As everyone's trying to figure out what the world will look like. When there's a whole new world to be explored. What will the church look like going forward? Will the nation have enough strength to sustain itself against all these other things going on in the world? How will it fare in this turbulent world economy? It's kind of interesting how similar the questions of Knox's day are to our own. So what will this unassuming Knox do? Can, any really, can one man really have a distance, uh, uh, an impact? And John Knox is barely a blip on the radar. He's got some potential. John Knox is ordained as a priest. And we know that he's ordained younger than you're technically allowed to be a priest. So he's not supposed to be a priest. But they ordain him as a priest anyway. So he must have had a potential. But he's not exceptional. We know this because Knox can't find a position in the church. He can't find a church to pastor. There are a lot of priests at the time, and he can't get a job. So he starts working as a clerk or as an account, uh, as an accountant managing Catholic properties of investment in Scotland. He gets a clerical job because he can't find a pastor's job. Starts tutoring some children from a wealthy family, but that's really it. He's working in an office, tutoring some kids. But he's not a person of real importance. From a boring upbringing into a boring adulthood, i got to be honest, this is not much of a story so far. But that would change when Knox met a man named George Wisher. George Wisher was a leader in the earlier Scottish Reformation and had been banished from the land. And at some point he comes back into Scotland and Knox meets him and starts really thinking about themes of the Reformed Church. And starts thinking about the Reformation, starts traveling with Wisher, becomes a friend and associate of him. In fact, this picture that's on the bottom right, that first person in line 
is John Knox, and Wishart is behind him. Knox used to walk around and be a bodyguard for Wishart. So he, he had this big two-handed sword, and his job was if anybody tried to attack Wishart, he was to be able to swing this big sword around to get distance to help get Wishart away. But Wishart was betrayed by someone close to him in 1536. After an event uh, that he was speaking at, he was captured. And he must have known it was going to happen because he specifically ordered Knox not to go with him. He just mixed Knox. He says, you're not my bodyguard anymore. Go home. And this is his quote. One is sufficient for a sacrifice. I think he knew it was coming. He didn't want Knox to be a part of it because apparently he saw something in Knox. He was indeed arrested, tried for heresy, and burned at the stake. He became a martyr, though. Everybody got excited, and including, including Knox. As that fire burns around that stake, it ignites something for Scotland, and especially in Knox. So the Protestants get all upset in Scotland, and they actually storm and take over the St. Andrew's Castle where the Wishart had been uh, tried and had been killed, and take it over. They kill the cardinal who had sentenced Wishart, and they use the cardinal's son as basically like a hostage. And so in the middle of Scotland, there becomes this castle that is a Protestant castle. They've got pretty good numbers. It's pretty fortified. And so there's really not that much that happens immediately. Um, so Knox goes there. He takes the kids that he's tutoring there. Uh, he, the, apparently the family he's tutoring is more of a Protestant family. And so he goes to that town and uh, starts working there. Becomes sort of a chaplain to the town. They start getting him to teach just a little bit more. And things really change for Knox when there's a speaker that comes in and starts talking about the Catholic Mass as if it's really the right way. It starts really taking on the Protestant way of doing things. And Knox stands up from the back of, the, of the, the sanctuary, I can imagine. And he stands up with this big beard. He's obviously starting to grow by this time. And says, no. And challenges the guy to a debate. This was very common. You would debate issues on a, on a public square. So a couple of days later, they have the debate. And John Knox schools him. Just picks him apart publicly in front of everybody. Well, a couple of Catholic supporters get up and then once again challenge Knox to a debate. This happens three or four times before people figure out John Knox is not a person you want to debate with. He's whipping everybody in these debates. And finally that slows down, but what, what happens there is Knox finds his voice. He finds his gifts. And suddenly he begins to preach and he begins to become a little more of a leader in this castle. But not for long. Shortly after, he finds his voice, starts finding his authority, starts getting some more leadership. The, uh, the, the negotiations with, with Scotland began to break down, and the, the castle was attacked. A lot of people got out, but there were certain people, including John Knox, that tried to stay in the castle. And so they're fighting, they're trying to repel the enemy, the, the Scottish armies, but they, they're just not getting any help. And so finally, finally, they look out to the sea and they see ships and they think, oh, we've got reinforcements from England. England has come to save us. But as the ships get closer, they're not English ships. They're French ships. 
come to knock out more of the reformers on behalf of Scotland. They're forced to give up. And in 1547, uh, John Knox is captured as a slave. And for 18 months is forced to be a galley slave on the French ships. Now galley slaves, would, they would be in the boat. They did not have a lot of food. If you see movies with galley slaves, they're always thin, always dirty, always in bad health. That's realistic. They're cheap labor. They're cheap fuel. And when you didn't have good wind, and when you wanted to go a little faster, the galley, the galley crews would work in small crews to use big oars to continue to move the ship. And this is what Knox is forced to do for uh, 18 or 19 months. At one point, he looks out on the, on the ship, and he sees St. Uh, Andrews and St. John's Cathedral where he would preach there, uh, where he found his gift. And he said this, I see the steeple of that place where God first in public opened my mouth to his glory. I am fully persuaded how weak that I ever now appear that I shall not depart this life till that my tongue shall glorify his godly name in that same place. So we called it there in the galley of that boat. I am not going to die until I once again stand there where God called me to preach and speak and preach and speak there again. Crazy to think about because a lot of galley slaves died. In fact, Knox is never fully healthy after this. Uh, they don't really say, we don't really know kind of what happened to him. But we know that he's weak and he's a lot more fragile after this. Doesn't seem to slow him down. We don't know what happened, but Knox is eventually released. It's wondered if maybe the English finally negotiated for them to come out of those galley ships. We do know that Knox doesn't go back to Scotland. But instead, he goes to England. In England, he is really welcomed. Reputation of him has spread there. And uh, he apparently pretty quickly preaches before the king and even becomes royal chaplain to King Edward VI. He has influence on the revision of what's called the Book of Common Prayer, which is really the center of the Anglican faith. But remember that the king is not all that excited about Protestantism. Okay, he's still in the Tudor's family. He's still not really a Protestant. Um, he's really kind of self-interested. Knox, however continued to preach against the Catholic Church. He thought it was a terrible idea to kneel for communion. He thought statues and idols in worship were bad. He actually had communion done around tables. So he would rearrange the, the place so that you would have a table so everybody could come and sit down. And he thought that was most like what Jesus did at the communion table. And that's maybe what we should do too. He pushed back against prayers to the saints. So Knox is in a dilemma. He's in England. But how much do you really rebel against authority there? Okay. He, he, he's getting, he finally gets offered several pastorates, but he turns them down. He, he does not want to pastor in England, apparently. He converts a woman named Mrs. Elizabeth Bowles and her daughter Marjorie uh, to the Protestant faith. Not her husband and Marjorie's father. But he also gets engaged to Marjorie. Now, Marjorie is about 17, and he's about 38. So, even in those days where there were larger age gaps in marriages, this was a little bit far. Okay, a little far stretching. But, her father resists the relationship, and eventually Knox is sort of put under pressure. Mary Tudor takes the throne, 
And John Knox is sort of forced into hiding and can't get married before he goes. He leaves England and goes to meet with John Calvin at Geneva. This was very, very common, by the way. A lot of reformers were forced into exile, forced to leave places where they were from. And a lot of them ended up in certain towns. One was called, one was Frankfurt, but another one was Geneva. Geneva was sort of a hotbed. You could go there, learn from Calvin, be safe. And so Calvin's Geneva ends up being a place where a lot of these exiles go. Uh, Knox loves it in Geneva. Because Knox is a lover of the Bible. He really cares about the Bible. But he'd never really been taught a lot of Greek and Hebrew. He gets to learn that there. He learns the representative government system of the church. He has a lot of questions about women in leadership. At the time here, women aren't in leadership over men in almost any case. Okay? No social institution are, are women the head of that institution. Save one. The queens. The queens are the only place where women are in charge. And these particular women that are in charge are very problematic, uh, particularly for the Reformed faith. So there's all this debate. Can women be in leadership? Can we rebel against a leader? Or if God puts a leader in our place, do we need to submit to that leader? Knox is wrestling with these questions. But when he goes to Geneva, he finds all kinds of other people that have wrestled with those same questions. He spends some time there. He goes to Frankfurt and and becomes a pastor to English exiles there. That doesn't work out very well. He gets into some fights and ends up coming back to Geneva to pastor the English exiles there. This is the problem. If you're in exile, you go to Geneva. Most of the church services are in French. If you're in English, what do you do? Well, they would have English services too. And they would have German services and they would have French. They would have all these different languages And they'd have different pastors for the exiles in there, all mentored by John Calvin. But he still feels this this pull back towards Scotland. In fact, he's known to have said, give me Scotland or I die. He really wants to see Scotland become Protestant and really become a strong force. He finally does get to go back to Scotland, does a little preaching tour in the meantime as he's been gone. His popularity is continuing to grow. He finally gets to get married, and he's also, he's also brought up on trial for heresy. So he's forced to go, um, and normally what would happen is you would uh, you'd get you'd called in, and they'd say, okay, we're going to put you on trial for heresy. you get charged with heresy, and you had to show up that day, but normally people wouldn't go show up. And what you would normally do is you'd run. It was a good way to kick people out of the country, right? We're going to put you on trial for heresy. You come in, but you don't come in. You leave. And that way, you're gone. We don't really have to make you a martyr by by killing you. Knox, though, is bold at this point. And Knox goes to his heresy trial. He shows up, and he walks in the room, and everybody's really surprised. Like, you weren't supposed to come to this. You were supposed to leave. But he doesn't. He goes to the trial as if he's going to be tried as a heretic and burned at the stake, just like his mentor had been. But they know if they try John Knox as a heretic, they're going to get an even stronger response than they did with Wisher. And so they get him off on a technicality. But he knows his time in Scotland's limited. And he leaves again, goes to Geneva, this time with his wife and his mother-in-law. Uh, they travel to Geneva. 
Well, in Geneva, he writes a book that's one of his most famous books called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Now, uh, to be fair, uh, it's maybe a little bit anti-women, but he has some really great and caring relationships with a number of women uh, and has a real respect for a lot of women in his communities. You've got to understand that when they say monstrous, when we think monstrous, we think Frankenstein, we think Halloween, like monsters. But in those days, they didn't talk about monsters like that. They just said this, this is a terrible regiment, a terrible rule of these particular uh, women that... Uh, they were almost all named Mary, by the way, that he was constantly fighting against. The question is whether men, women should be in authority over men and uh, what to do against women in leadership when they're doing such bad things. The problem he has is that this book gets published and it gets spread really quickly because we now have a printing press. It gets spread really quickly over England and Scotland just as uh, Bloody Mary comes to power. Okay? Just as Bloody Mary comes to power, Bloody Mary is known as Bloody Mary because of the blood she spilt of the Protestants. And so uh, from that point on, Knox really doesn't travel in England anymore. He's not granted safe passage. He's not allowed, despite the fact that he writes the queen, um, she's not really happy with him. But he does eventually get back to Scotland. He he does a lot of traveling in his life because he's always in danger. He goes to places, he gets threatened there. And uh, eventually he realizes he's got to sort of skedaddle. But he always manages to go back. He's very wise about when he moves and when he stays. Back in Scotland, Mary of Guise is the regent. She's ruling the area. And she summons all the preachers on May 5th, 1559. Uh, I think it's May 2nd. Yeah, it's May 2nd. 1559. She says all the preachers have to come before her and give her account of what they're preaching. Except... She tells them that they have to come by May, on May 10th. That gives them only eight days of warning, meaning it's physically impossible for them all to change their plans and travel that far to get there. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ruse, you get that? She's trying to trap them so they can't show up so then she can forbid them from preaching because she hasn't approved of their preaching. But she made one miscalculation. The very day that she does this, May 2nd, is the day that John Knox shows back up in Scotland. John Knox walks in, hears about this, and is not really pleased. So on May 11th, the day after all those preachers were supposed to show up, Knox preaches a sermon that gets really fired up, gets really excited. In fact, there's a painting of it. You can kind of see it in the upper left hand here. And Knox is in the painting, leaning over the pulpit with his hands out. And even Knox admitted this was a pretty intense sermon. And it gets everybody fired up. In fact, it starts a riot. Although that's not necessarily what Knox was trying to do. They're using this sanctuary. And later in the day, there's supposed to be mass in that same area. And uh, a priest is walking to mass. And a boy stops the priest and proceeds to tell the priest exactly what he thought of the mass. It's really Knox's words, and it's really pretty strong language. And eventually the priest gets so mad, he tries to swing and punch the kid. He misses. The kid kind of runs back and grabs a stone and throws it at the priest. It misses, but it breaks the statue of a saint behind him. 
There are all kinds of people in the crowd see this, see the kid almost get slugged, see the saint gets, get broken and fall to the ground. And within two or three minutes, it's a riot like you've seen on movies or you've seen in TV shows, right? There's fighting, things are getting looted, everything's getting broken. I mean, it's nuts. It's chaos. The, the uh, Mary of Guys, the region, even attempts to personally lead some soldiers in to take care of it, but they're outnumbered. Okay? The Reformation has so taken hold at this point that, uh, that there's no way they can really deal with it, and they've just got to let it die down and sort of let the Protestants win this riot. The amazing thing is that this sermon, this, this fiery sermon that Knox preaches is preached at St. John's Kirk, the church by St. Andrew's Castle that he said on the galley, someday I'm going to preach there again before I die. In 1560, Knox helps helps craft the Scots Confession, which is really the theological center of the Scottish Reformation. It's still in our book of confessions today. We use it in worship every once in a while. Also in 1560, his wife Marjorie dies. She had been a big help to him. Uh, her, her mother had taken care of a lot of stuff around the house. And so she had been, been a, a hostess to all kinds of other reformers, all kinds of other important people, and had really helped him in his writing and in his faith. So it becomes a problem. He has two sons at this time, Nathaniel and Eliezer, 8 and 12 years old when their mother dies. In 1564, he'll again remarry Margaret Stewart. She is once again about 17 years old. This time, he's 50. Um, Actually, there was all kinds of rumors about him when he was alive, uh, about uh, how he married a young girl, how his mother-in-law came and lived with him. When she died, his mother-in-law continued to live with him. Then he goes and marries another 17-year-old girl. You could see how this would be uh, quite a, a tabloid thing. Uh, but according to everything, there's really no truth to any suspicion that it was anything other than kind of odd relationships, but, but healthy and good by, by everyone's standards. A lot of people really knew them, uh, but it was a place that you could discredit him a little bit. Eventually, John Knox's work paid off. Scotland became a Protestant nation. The Parliament revoked any authority of that the Pope had in Scotland. Mary, Queen of Scots, would have to leave the throne seven years later because she had remained Catholic. And this move to Protestantism helped stabilize and unify Scotland. John Knox continued to pastor and preach and teach right up until his death in 1572, although he was not in good health. And often he would have to whisper. They would have to help him to sit down so that he could preach. He helped organize the new Protestantism that was growing Modeled it after some ideas that, not, that Calvin had about a representative government. He called it Presbyterianism. And it would also be very influential in the English colony that was starting over in the New World as they became a nation. The governmental system he helped develop would also really influence the way our nation governs today. Much of his final preaching was silent but But he's known to have said the day before he died, I have been fighting against Satan, who is ever ready for the assault. I have fought against spiritual wickedness and have prevailed. Knox is this interesting, complicated man, right? Threatened by many queens named Mary, a fiery person, 
health issues, harsh in an argument, and yet a caring pastor who became a pastor to so many people wherever he went. We have a lot of his letters and we can see how just gentle and caring he could be. Calvin called him God's firebrand. Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, has been heard to declare, I am more afraid of the prayers of John Knox than of an army of 10,000. At his grave, Earl of Morton, the regents of Scotland, says, Here lieth a man who in his life never feared the face of a man, who hath been often threatened with dagger, and yet hath ended his days in peace and honor. John Knox saw his mentor burned at the stake, spent 18 or 19 months on the galley of a ship as a slave. He knew exactly the consequences that could come of the actions that he took. And yet he pressed on all the more bolder as he grew older. Reminds me of the Apostle Paul, right? Paul goes through all this stuff. Shipwrecked, beaten, cane, th- I mean stone. He goes through all this. And yet he just gets more and more bold as if to say, like, what are you going to take from me? You can take my life. You can't take what's really valuable. Paul writes this letter to Timothy and says not to be ashamed and not to be afraid. In some translations, Paul encourages him not to have a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of boldness. And that's John Knox, a man who overcame so much with a true spirit of boldness. And when you say you're Presbyterian, and when you sit in these pews, you claim that as your family lineage. May you be so bold. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the example of John Knox, and I pray that you would help us to be bold in this world. That we too live in a turbulent and changing world and we need to have an influence on that world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.